10 hardest things to do. You've tried a few things, maybe. Sport. What What, are, what have you found to be some of the most difficult things to do in all sports? What do you got? Watch Louisville. Watch Louisville play. <laughs> Especially on a Thursday afternoon against Duke, right? That was bad. The long jump. All right. All right. Get a puck. Hit a hockey puck. Wow. All right. That's a year from up north, see? So, yeah. Big deal. Half court shot. All right. What else? What else have you tried that you found to be difficult? Golf. Golf. Do you still try? Okay, good. You still try. It's uh, it's like Charlie Brown with a football, right? You just keep coming back over and over. What else? What else have you found to be difficult to do in sports? You don't normally get to talk back on Sunday morning, so enjoy it. Let's go. Golf. golf okay, you two with golf. Kicking a field goal. Tennis. Somebody said tennis. What else? Snowboarding. Snowboarding. Ooh, yeah. That would be. That just looks painful even, even trying it. Yeah. Here's what they said. Here are the top ten things that, that in this survey they said were the hardest things to do in all of sports. Number one, of course, hitting a baseball. Secondly was driving a race car. Third was pole vaulting. So why in the world? I have no idea. You want to try that. But anyway, hitting a straight tee shot. The straight is the key word there. Hitting a straight tee shot. Returning a professional tennis serve. Coming at you about 120 miles an hour. Good luck with that. Landing a quad toe loop. Some of you know what that is. I have no idea what that is. It's something in, in figure skating, and they, they spin around a few times and try not to die. That's... Uh... <laughs> Running a marathon, speaking of trying not to die. Running a marathon. Completing the Tour de France. Yeah, do you realize how far they go in that thing? And they're racing uphill, and, they're, and it's amazing. Saving a penalty kick in soccer. And then number 10 was doing the Olympic downhill ski. However fast you're going doing that. Now, the things you mentioned certainly are all very difficult. Those were just revealed in the top 10 in their survey. But here's my philosophy. Now, this is completely biased. I'll just tell you this. My philosophy is this, that if you can do the hardest one of all those, you got a shot at the rest of them. If you can hit a baseball, this is, this is my bias. If you can hit a baseball, you might have a chance to do the downhill ski, right? You may have a chance. You might have a chance to hit a straight tee shot. I don't know. It seems to me, though, that sometimes if you master the most difficult thing, then some of the other things might begin to fall into place, even if they're equally, it seems, difficult. From what I've found, I think this is also true about life, not just about sports. Because last week we talked about the hardest thing to do in life, and that is to die to yourself. And I really believe that of all the things that we are commanded to do in Scripture, of all the things that we must do in order to relate to others and relate, of course, to Jesus Christ, dying to ourselves is at the top of the list. It must happen. Without it, we cannot relate to God. But it is the most difficult thing to do because wherever you go, there you are, right? Self is is so difficult to die to. But I believe that as we'll see what I think is the second hardest thing to do in life, we'll look at that today, I think once you get the first one, you got a shot at the second one. The second one becomes a little bit easier when you master the first one. If you can die to yourself, then what Jesus talks about today as a follow-up scripture will be a little bit easier. I won't say that it'll be easy. Because I said it is the second hardest thing to do, I think, in life. At least as far as I've found in my own life. 
But I do think that if we can get the first one, die to ourselves, then the second one we'll look at today becomes something that we can say, you know what, I can see how it would be possible to do what Jesus has commanded me to do. In Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look today at verses 43 to 48. So we're going to round out this chapter. And in so doing, we'll close out the time that we've been looking at. We'll look at chapter 6 in a couple of weeks. What we've been looking at so far is is the series of, of statements that Jesus makes in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you've heard it said this, but let me tell you this. Now, what he's not been doing is contradicting Old Testament Scripture. Some people have, have accused Jesus of doing that. That's not what he was doing in any way. He's simply clarifying what it actually meant. There was a lot of misunderstanding about what does this mean. And a lot of people were teaching some false stuff and leading other people to do things that weren't exactly what God wanted them to do. So Jesus shows up, and as God, he's going to correct them on their interpretation of his law. And so that's what we've been looking at. We've seen over and over, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this. And today we'll look at the final one of these antitheses that Jesus will give us. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll turn the page and head toward chapter 6. But this morning, here's what he says. Look at it, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Now you can immediately see how this is a very difficult teaching from Jesus. Dying to yourself is the first. And then the second, as he says, I tell you, love your enemies. Boy, that's the second hardest thing to do. He says there, verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where in the world did that come from? He's, he's quoting something. Where did it come from? Now, we're familiar with the love your neighbor part. You probably have heard that before, even if you're not a church person. You don't have to be in church for people to say, you know, you're supposed to, supposed to love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. That, it's almost become a cliche in some point. And we know that's biblical, though. It's found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Leviticus 19 talks about loving your neighbor. Certainly we know in Matthew 23, Jesus is asked, what are the two greatest commandments? The first is to love God with all that you are. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 27, rather. And, and it's a clear teaching in all of Scripture. We are to love our neighbors. Now, the Pharisees uh, and, and the Jews, all these, these folks, knew that loving their neighbor was something that God did indeed expect from them. So this part's not, not, anything, not anything new. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. But what about the second part of that quote? Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and what? Hate your enemy. Where'd that come from? Uh, is that in the Bible? You may be saying, well, Jesus said it. Yeah, it's right there in the Bible, I guess. Maybe. Do you see how, how if you take something out of context, you can easily misconstrue what Jesus is talking about? He's not giving a command to, to hate your enemy. He's getting ready to correct them. It's not in the Bible anywhere. Nowhere is this quoted in the Bible, but that's what people were being taught. They were being actually taught that they were to love their neighbors. Yeah, go ahead and do that. But you can and you should hate your enemy. How could that sort of teaching be justified? How could biblical teachers not immediately be recognized as unbiblical teachers when they say to people, hate 
your enemies. Let me give you a little bit of background because this is all in the semantics and how they define the words and interpreted things. A little bit of background, just real quick. Uh, I think this is important to get. In the Old Testament, we know that, that God identified certain groups of people as enemies of his. That's very clear. It's, it's clear in the Old Testament. And it's clear in the Old Testament that he also judged his enemies. And it's also clear in the Old Testament that he used the Israelites to be his judgment bringers on those nations. And so what do we do? Because in fact, when the Israelites were about to enter the land of Canaan, do you know what God told them to do to all the Canaanites? Kill them. Exterminate them. Every last one of them. What in the world is that? But that's what he said. Why on earth would God tell them to do that? If he's also commanding them to love their neighbors. Make any sense to you? It's a little confusing, isn't it, first? The solution, it's actually fairly simple. The solution is that it is God's place and God's alone to bring judgment on sinners. And he has the right. This is God's prerogative. He has the right to bring judgment on sinners in his time, when he wants, how he wants. That's God's prerogative. And so what you had in the land of Canaan were several nations that had over time been offered the chance through the Israelite influence and so on, the chance to become what were known as God-fearers and sort of join up with the nation of Israel, though they wouldn't be blood Jews, they could be partners in this faith in God. And they had rejected it over and over and over and over and hardened their hearts to the point that God said, that's enough. Enough. Now, young people, let me tell you this. I want you to know that Jesus died for you and loves you and his grace is available for you. And yet, I don't want you to miss the opportunity that you might have that who knows if it comes back around again to give your life to Jesus Christ. The Bible talks about the hardening of the heart. Don't harden your heart against the Lord. I'm so glad that you're here this morning. I want you to know if you're a young person, I'm not on you because you're here. I am super thrilled that you're here. Because I want you to hear the message of Jesus Christ. I want you to hear the message of God's grace. And not eventually down the road, particularly for all eternity, face God's judgment. But these folks had hardened their hearts and God said that's enough. Because what he was going to do, he was going to preserve the nation of Israel and eventually bring his Messiah through this nation. And he didn't want these ungodly influences in the land that he was giving to his people. So it's a double thing. He's preserving the nation of Israel and he's judging sin. And it's only God's prerogative to do that. And so in the Old Testament, you can see God essentially, if you will, with a perfect kind of of hate, and that's a sermon for another time, but a very holy kind, not like our kind of hate, a very holy kind which judges sin impartially, God essentially judging his enemies. Now later on in the Psalms, you have different words. Some of you read the Psalms before. You ever notice the Psalms where it gets to the point where it's been all kind of fluff and happy and, and, and he's excited and he's running through meadows and so on. And then all of a sudden he starts asking God to kill all of his enemies. It's like, you know, what in the world? That doesn't make any sense. He's calling down curses. They're called imprecatory psalms. Calling down curses on your enemies. What's up with that? God said, love your, your neighbor. And this guy writing this psalm is calling down curses on Bill Stinson because Bill Stinson did this to him. You're going to stop sitting there at some point because I always pick on you every Sunday morning. 
What about that? What, what were they doing? Were they, were they not loving their neighbor? What, what's, what's going on? Is this permission to hate your enemy, to call down curses on them? If you read the context of those Psalms, what you're going to find is that their passion wasn't hatred toward the enemy, but it was love and zeal for God that drove them to say, Lord, I want you to be so glorified and so recognized that, that enemies cannot stand in your presence. Destroy anyone who does not believe in you because you are so holy. It wasn't a personal vendetta. It was a defense of God's holiness. And so it's different. But what the Pharisees and the teachers of the Old Testament had done was to take stuff like that from the Old Testament and say, well, okay. It says to love your neighbor, but I guess, hey, we can hate our enemies. what, What a great thing that would be. They misunderstood it completely. And beyond that, what they did in misconstruing this teaching, they said in Leviticus 19, the the command to love your neighbor was only given to the Jews. And so you only have to love those who are Jewish, who are part of your nation. Anybody else is an enemy. So conveniently, they ignore God's commands about leaving gleanings for the poor and the the sojourner and and for taking in the stranger and loving that person as you would yourself. They they ignore all of that stuff and they focus on, well, God said love our neighbors. Our neighbors are all the people that are just like us and anybody else who's different, that's our enemy. You can see why Jesus says, let me stop you for just a second. Let me tell you what this really means. And here's what he says, verse 44. I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Why? He says, so that you may be called sons of your Father in heaven. Essentially, so that it will be obvious that you are a child of God. There is to be a difference between those who are not believers in Jesus Christ and those who are. And this is one major way that it's revealed. Now, this is way out there when he says, love your enemies. That's crazy. They're enemies for crying out. You got them. I've got them. You don't know what they've done to me, Jesus. You don't know what they could do to me. They're different. And in fact, back then they would say racially, we're not even the same. Hold on. Everybody knows the Jews are favored by God. What are you telling me? Love somebody who's not a Jew. But nowhere in the Old Testament, as I said, is a statement found, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so he's going to fully correct them. Who are the enemies that Jesus is talking about here? Other people that are different. People that are a threat. Folks who do mean things. People don't like us. Folks we might be jealous of. They have what we think we deserve. They, they've maybe hurt us or abandoned us or abused us in some way. Or stolen from us. They've talked about us. They've fired us from a job. They've threatened us. They're people who don't share our views about God and life. Enemies on the outside. Now you're already thinking of their names. You know who I'm talking about. In just a minute, we're going to call them all. I'm just saying that. You, you know, though, don't you? You know who they are. They're your enemies. People you don't want anything to do with. People who scare you. People you want to avoid at all costs. Folks who cause you anxiety and fear. People that literally you'd go out of your way to, to avoid every chance you get. Their presence is more than you can handle. And then there are some people that you can't even explain why they're an enemy, but they are. And that comes from our racial prejudice, from our geographical prejudice, from our sports prejudice, whatever. And we don't even have to know them. But, but, but if they're a different color, if they come from a different place, talk a little differently, or root for a different team, then automatically they are an enemy. It's funny how that happens. You know, you and I should be mortal enemies for the most part, just so you know. But I've chosen to love you no matter what, so you know. 
You know, I, I, we joke about it all the time, but, you know, it is surprising, I'll be quite honest with you, that you, you hired a pastor several years ago that neither pulls for the University of Kentucky nor the St. Louis Cardinals, um, that, that is not a farmer, grew up in the city, Louisville no less, Louisville, Golden Triangle, Louisville. I mean, it, isn't it interesting? We should be mortal enemies based upon where I'm from and who I pull for and, and all of that stuff. But like I said, I, cho- I choose to love you anyway, so, so we're good. But it's interesting how we do that. And Jesus says, here's what you've been taught. You've been taught that you're supposed to hate these people. That in fact, God wants you to hate them. That you're holy for hating them because you're so perfect and so on. That God hates them too. And that if you don't hate them, you're out of God's will. And it's impossible to love them anyway, so all they deserve is hate. That's what Jesus says. Here's what you've been taught. Now, you haven't maybe been taught that explicitly. But I guarantee you there are folks here who grew up in homes... Where, hey, we're going to love the people that love us. We're going to take care of our own. And a heck with everybody else. You know what I'm talking about? Hey, they do something to you, guess what? Label them. Enemy. We're going to get them. We're going to take, we're going to take back what's ours. They, they took something from us, we're going to take it back. Whatever. We, we, we have that. Maybe not explicitly hate your enemy, but we've been taught those things. It's just natural. Jesus flips it all and he says, love your enemies. <laughs> He's radical. He is absolutely radical. A lot of people try to pass off Jesus as this good teacher, nice guy. This stuff's crazy. You notice that? I mean, it's crazy. He shows up on the scene and he, he just blows out of the water everything they'd always been taught. And he says, you think it's cool to, to hate your enemies? He said, look, time, time out. I'm going to tell you, not only should you not hate them, you should love them. Don't pass off Jesus as some mild, passive tea. He's radical. He is absolutely going to turn you on your ear. How is it even possible to do those things that he commands? Jesus expects it from us. But he's also going to demonstrate it for us as we see on the cross. And he enables us to do it through the power of his Holy Spirit. Ultimately, his main message in all of this, in this scripture, is very simple. The second hardest thing to do, here's what Jesus says, is to love like God loves. Love like God loves. It involves a couple different things. For those of you that are a little bit chilly, I apologize. But we're going to get some air moving. There we go. If you're cold, you don't want to go outside, so you're stuck right in here with us. Get a little closer to people next to you. You know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Anyway, two things it involves, to love like God loves. First of all is to see people differently. To see them differently. Jesus goes on and he talks about the righteous and the unrighteous and, and how God is looking down upon them essentially. And, and, and he talks about tax collectors and Gentiles and so on. And, 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 and he, he's giving us an overview of here's what God is doing. Here's how God is looking at it. Here's how God is seeing all the people in the world. And God sees them as sinners, as hurting, as lost, as blind. How did Jesus see people? He came upon the crowd and it said that he, he felt compassion because you might know the, the finish of that sentence because what? They were like what? Sheep without a shepherd. That's how Jesus saw people. God sees the world needing a savior, lost and hopeless without him. He sees their condition, their darkness, their sin, their hurt. 
How is it that you and I typically see people? Probably not according to that stuff, right? Probably not according to who they really are, what they're really dealing with, but we see them on what they look like and how they act and what they say and and where they're from and what they've done. And so we respond to people. We see people based upon all of those things. And so it's very easy for us to identify someone quickly as friend or foe, very quickly. And of course, it's even more difficult when it comes to this, when you've got a good reason to call someone an enemy. Because all you can see is what they've done to you. All you can see is the hurt that you have because of, of them. Or the flashbacks or the raw emotions. Every time you think, oh, i got those people too. I know I'm supposed to be like super holy guy or something, but i got people I don't like. Just plain don't like them. Just be honest with you. I know somebody, you know, maybe it's your first time here. You're never coming back. That preacher, you know, I don't know. But there are some people I don't like. They didn't, none of them showed up at church this morning, just so you know. Oh, man, is that me? There are some people, isn't it true, though? It's just some people you just don't like. They did something to you. They're, whatever. There are some people that it's easy for me to see as an enemy. But I do quite often. Very subjective and emotional. But that's not how God sees us. And if we're going to be imitators of God, as Galatians tells us to do, then we've got to see people as God sees them. If we're going to love them like God loves them, we've got to see them as God sees them. You know, if God saw us completely subjectively, if he didn't separate his emotion sometimes from seeing us, then we would get exactly what we deserve, which is annihilation and punishment for all eternity. But here in Matthew 5, we get a glimpse of how God sees people differently. He sees them not just as righteous and unrighteous, but because he gives the sun and rain to all just as people that he created. People who are objects of his love and grace just because they exist. To see people differently. I wonder this week if you said, even today, and you go to the restaurant or wherever you're going after church, and you say, you know what? Just for the next hour, I am going to try to see people as God sees them. Right here in this restaurant. And I'm going to see past what they look like, and past how they walk, and past how they talk, and past what they say, and what they do, and so on. And I'm really going to see if I can find out who really are they. What a great exercise. Secondly, to love people like God loves, not only to see them differently, but to treat them differently. Now, it's one thing to see past what they've done. Oh, I can see people differently, sure, no problem. This, however, is a more difficult thing. Jesus says, love your neighbor, love your enemy, pray for those, and so on. What God does for us, follow this for a second, don't miss this. The way that God treats us is not based upon who we are and what we deserve. It's based upon who He is. And there is a huge difference. He expects us, if we're going to love like God loves, to treat people like He does. He, instead of treating us according to what we deserve, which is punishment... He treats us according to who He is, which is gracious and loving. Do you see the difference? It's a choice that God has made. He could treat us all according to what we deserve. But in Christ Jesus, we see that God was loving us in spite of our sin, Romans 5 says, and dying for us, giving Himself for us. So not according to what we deserve does He treat us, but according to who He is. This week, today. 
If you want to say, I want to be obedient to Jesus Christ, I want to love like God loves, and I know that I need to treat people differently, let me encourage you to begin the process of treating them not according to what they deserve, but according to who you are in Christ Jesus, which is forgiven and redeemed and made new with a brand new heart and a brand new life. Instead of treating people according to what they deserve, treat them according to who you now are in Christ Jesus. I guarantee you, you will find this, as I said in the, in the title of the sermon, the second hardest thing to do in life. But if you will die to yourself, like we talked about last week, guess what? Treating people now according to what they deserve is not as big a deal because I ain't worried about me anymore. I'm not worried about what this is going to cost me. Jesus himself... Not only did he teach this, but he showed it. He endured a cruel death on a cross after he endured torture and beatings and being mocked and humiliated. And guess what he did on the cross? He said what? Father, forgive them. He's not just talking the talk. Jesus walked it. And here in Matthew 5, he says, God doesn't treat even the farmers the way they need to be treated, the way they deserve to be treated. I'm going to tell you the truth. If I were God, I would make it very clear which farmers were Christians and which were not. It would be totally clear. Because the Christian farmers, I mean, the ones that are really holy, we got a lot of them in here, right? Right, right, yeah, right, yeah, absolutely. we got some holy farmers in here. I would say, you know what, they're going to get exactly the amount of rain and sun they need, no more, no less. Perfect. Their fields are going to be exactly what they want. In fact, it's going to blow them away. The yields they'll have will be incredible. And the grain's going to be selling for, for prices they've never seen before. It's going to be unbelievable. And all the dudes that aren't Christians, that are farmers, they're going to have this dry field with nothing in it. Drive by, Christian, non-Christian, Christian, non-Christian, Christian. Man, guess everybody would be a Christian farmer then, wouldn't they? Man, send some rain this way. That's what I would do if I were God, but that's not what God does, is it? Because some of you are farmers. And you know the people that I'm talking about, the unrighteous Sometimes they get the perfect rain, don't they? Sometimes they get the perfect sun and you don't. Where's the justice in that? God, I'm following you. I'm doing all that I'm supposed to do. Lord, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm doing the best I can. I mean, I'm, I'm serving the church. I'm, I'm doing these different things. Lord, you know I love you. Why can't it rain like that on me? Or why do I get too much, too little? God, why won't the sun come out? Why won't the crops grow the way they're supposed to? What's wrong with the ground? Lord, what's going on? You know what it points to? It, it points to the fact that God doesn't treat us according to what we deserve. There's a greater truth at work, even in what we see in farming. That God treats all of us according to who he is, not what we deserve. And so he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Not that the unrighteous deserve it, but guess what? The righteous don't deserve it either, do we? But because he's gracious and he's good, he lets it rain on everybody. Because he's gracious and good, we all get sunshine. We all have air to breathe. Some of the farmers are like, man, I don't know if I like that or not. I'm still, I ain't sure about it. But every time, listen, if you are a farmer, the next time that you don't get the rain that you want or you get too much or too little, let me encourage you to come back to this scripture and say, Lord Jesus, thank you that, that even in this, I see that you don't treat me or anybody else according to what we deserve, but according to who you are. And I'm going to praise you for that, as difficult as it is. And Lord, we know you need some rain here. Let's go. But, but, but God, thank you. You don't treat me according to what I deserve. 
Treat people differently. Jesus talks about it in Luke chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, but, he, but here's another recording of this idea of the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, we're to treat people differently in what we do. He says, do good to those who do bad to you. It's the same, same concept. He says, love your enemies and do good to those who do bad things to you. In what we do, we are to, to return good for evil. Good for evil. Just like God sends the rain and the sun on unrighteous and evil people, we're called to do good to those people who do bad things to us. That's difficult, isn't it? We extend good because good has been extended to us. We, re- we refrain from retaliation because God has not retaliated against us. Now I realize in some situations, those people that have caused you such pain, it's not good for you to be around them, and I get that. And that's not what I'm saying. Totally understand that. And you should, you should have some distance between those people and maybe the folks that, that have abused and hurt you. I understand that. What Jesus is saying, though, is there is some good that can be done in that situation, not for that person, but for the glory of God being done to that person so they might see the love of Jesus through you. He says, treat them different in what you do. And then Jesus, would, he, he said here in Matthew 5, pray for those who persecute you. In, Matthew, in Luke chapter 6, he said, bless those who curse you. So in what we say and what we pray also to do good to people. You remember how mom used to always say, if you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all? She's half right. Half right, Mom is. Certainly that maybe ought to be your first step. Because dying to yourself may say, and I'm going to turn the other cheek, I'm going to keep my mouth shut, I'm not going to say anything. But Jesus takes it one step further. That's why Mom's only half right. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, bless those who curse you. So if you don't have anything good to say, figure out something good to say, Jesus says. Teaching is radical. It's different. It's tough. And then he says, pray for those who persecute you. I'll say this. If you want to be obedient to Jesus Christ, if I want to be obedient to Jesus, I've got to pray for my enemies. For that person that makes life difficult, for, for the, the, the person that's hurt you, the person that you don't like, the folks you're going to talk to tomorrow at work that you know, they just, they're out to get you, whatever. You want to live in obedience to Jesus Christ, pray for those people. Here's what happens. Number one, you get to be obedient to Jesus when you pray for those enemies of yours. Secondly, God changes your heart through it. You realize you can't pray for somebody that you hate? And you can't hate for somebody that you're praying for? And you can't be obedient to Jesus unless you're praying for the people that you hate? You see how it works? You see what God's doing? Okay? God's not going to let us off the hook. I wish he did. I wish you'd just say, look, yeah, you guys, you've had so much happen to you. You stay over here and you don't, have to, you don't have to obey this scripture because there's so much that's happened to you. He doesn't do that. He says, I want you to be obedient. And in being obedient, I'm going to change your heart. You're going to pray for these people. There's your obedience. And over time, I'm going to change your heart so that what? You see them differently and you treat them differently so that you may be, as he said, sons of your heavenly father absolutely displayed for God's glory. Here's what God's love looks like. Here's what it means to be a son or daughter of God. Eventually, what we'll find is what the kingdom of God enables in us. Jesus said, receive the kingdom. What, What the rule of God enables in us is very simply that I have no enemies, only neighbors. You may not be there right now. I know I'm not always there. 
But the more that you allow the rule of God to come into your life, the more that you say, Lord, I'm not going to see people as I see them, but as you see them. Lord, I'm not going to treat people according to what they deserve, but according to what you've done in me. The more that you do that, the more you can get to the point where you say, I have no enemies, only neighbors. I've done several funerals. And it's always interesting to me, and, and half the time I'll just be honest with you, I don't believe it. When people will tell me, they didn't have an enemy. They never said a bad word about anybody. Now, it's real nice to be able to say that about somebody, you know, as, as, as we're doing their funeral and so on. But I wonder, I wonder, in some cases, is it true, and if it is, at what point did they say, you know what, Lord, I'm done with all this. These people are controlling me. And God, my heart is hard toward them. And as a result of my horizontal relationships, I know I can't be right with you. And I'm done. And I'm, I'm done having enemies. And I'm going to look at the whole world as one, one big God neighborhood. Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? And he told him a story. You remember the story? story of the good Samaritan who comes upon someone who was not exactly like him. And in fact, it was a Jewish person. And they're supposed to hate each other. They were enemies. And a Samaritan stops after Jewish people had passed on by, essentially hating this man. He stops and he, he says, hey, let me help you. No reason to do it. Could have walked on by and been completely justified according to law. And he stops and he bandages the guy up, gets him some medical attention, puts him up in a hotel for a few nights, says to the, to the hotel manager, look, I'm going I'm to pay what I got now. I'm coming back through. If he incurs any more bills, any room charges, anything like that, room service, anything he wants, you just put it on my tab and I'm coming back to pay it. And Jesus says, who was the neighbor in that situation? The question was, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, you, you got the wrong question. The question is, who's not my neighbor? Who's not? God causes the rain and the sun to come and be on the righteous and unrighteous, and yet we, I, say, I don't know if I'm going to do that. To be like our Father in heaven, we must love like God loves, to see people differently, to treat them differently, to get to the point where we say, I have no enemies, only neighbors, because ultimately, as we're going to partake of communion, we get the ultimate example of God saying to those who were his enemies, because of our sin and our separation, and then by the death of Jesus Christ, he extends a neighboring hand to us and says, I no longer call you enemies, but he says, I've called you my friends, my neighbors, those that I love. I'm going to ask our deacons, if you guys would come forward and they'll be serving our communion in just a moment. I don't want you to miss the significance today and the symbolism even of, of taking communion on a day where we talk about loving enemies. <laughs> Because as I just said, we are all by birth, by nature, sinful nature. We are enemies of God, the scripture tells us. And yet Jesus came to bridge that gap, to bring friendship.